This morning we're going to consider the paralytic, the paralytic and our passage is Luke chapter 5 verse 18 through to 26. When you think about it, various routes were taken this morning for you to come to church, depending on where you live, depending on whether you drove here, maybe you took a bus, I don't know that anyone did, but you may have taken a bus, or you may have walked here, and if you walked, you may have cut through some back alleys. So, you've taken different routes different means of transport or your feet to come here. But you've made good use of your time by coming here. That's the main thing. You've come here, you've entered through the front doors and that is all very good. And I'm glad to see you here. Similarly, there is only one saviour from sin, the Lord Jesus Christ, even though there are many circumstances that bring people to him as repentant sinners. And you can be sure that uh, no two testimonies are quite the same, are they? When you listen to people telling you how they became Christians, it's always something slightly different or very different. For example, most people come to saving faith having received teaching about Jesus and his gospel from mothers, fathers... Sunday school teachers, perhaps they've listened to the preaching on Sunday morning and they've been challenged by what they've heard and uh, they've repented and come to saving faith in Christ. Sometimes the journey to Christ and to salvation through faith in his name can be very different. For example... Something that I always remember was when I was living in London years ago when I first became a Christian and I used to get on a soapbox in Covent Garden with some other preachers, open-air preachers and uh, a Scotsman was visiting London from Scotland and he took a leaflet, a, a gospel leaflet. He didn't hang around, he took a leaflet and... After his time in London, I don't know how long he spent there visiting the sites, he went back to Scotland. Now apparently, on his journey, he was rather bored and he dug deep in his pocket and got out the gospel leaflet and started reading it. He had nothing else to read. And he later sent a letter to the London London Inreach Project. That's the little group that I was part of. He sent a letter to the London InReach Project reminding us of himself. I can't actually remember him. And um, he explained that he'd received a gospel leaflet and one thing led to another. And uh, he was now a Christian and in membership at a local church in Scotland. But that was his journey or the journey that the Lord Jesus Christ or God put him on to come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes people come to faith in Jesus having been forgiven by him 
at a time when they are going through a crisis, perhaps going through a crisis with their health. For example, when I was a a London city missionary, I used to visit the home of a doctor. She was a Christian. And I'd visit her home and uh, we'd look into the scriptures together and pray. And all the while we were doing that, uh, her Muslim husband would sit in the corner of the room watching the television and he'd be watching some Nigerian TV channels. He was Nigerian, they both were Nigerian. He'd be watching his TV channels and uh, at the same time I'm sure he kept an eye on me and his wife. And that carried on for quite some time, those visits. And then he was diagnosed with cancer and things changed for him. And guess, I guess you might say that he had no hope in his religion, no hope of anything beyond the grave. And he started to ask questions and his wife and I would speak to him at length, open up the scriptures to him concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, his work of salvation. And that continued. It continued even when he was in hospital in central London in his deathbed. But right to the end, whilst I read the scriptures to him, and I remember reading Psalm 23 to him, he was praising the Lord, praising the God of his salvation. That was his journey to Christ. It took a very big health crisis for him to come to saving faith in Jesus. The passage before us this morning gives details of a paralysed man whose sins were forgiven after he was lowered through the roof of a house. We can assume it was a flat roof house. He was lowered through the roof of a house on his bed into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's a lovely that's a lovely thing to think about, isn't it? Being lowered to, down to the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was the, that was the circumstances for the paralysed man. Let's have a look at Luke chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. And behold, men brought in a bed, a man which was taken with a palsy, And they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before him. And when they could not find by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop and led him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. A paralytic, a paralysed man lying in his bed was brought to Jesus by some well-meaning people in The parallel account in Mark's Gospel, chapter 2 and verse 3, we're told that there were four men, presumably one for each corner of the bed. They may have been his friends. One thing that can be safely said is that whoever they were, they were filled with concern and compassion for the paralysed man. 
They couldn't get to Jesus through the front door because the house was packed with people. Consequently, they somehow managed to take the paralytic on his bed up the side of the house. Maybe there were stairs outside, I don't know. Up the side of the house, onto the roof. Then they made an opening in the roof and lowered him on his bed, presumably using ropes. And they lowered him into the presence of the incarnate Son of God. Those four stretcher bearers must have had all the determination of a mountain rescue team. Something that can be learnt from these verses is when you think about that paralysed man, he couldn't do a thing for himself. And what we can learn from that is left to our own devices, none of us would ever come to Jesus for forgiveness of our sins. It just wouldn't happen. As Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 6 and verse 44, no man cometh can come to me, no man can come to me, except the Father which have sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. We need to be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ. That speaks of a power outside of yourself, bringing you to Jesus. And I'm not talking about the parents, your parents who perhaps spoke to you about the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not talking to you about the Sunday school teachers or the preachers or even the stretcher bearers in our passage. The power is God who uses various circumstances such as parents, Sunday school teachers, etc. And he draws sinners to his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As the prophet Jeremiah said, the Lord have, the Lord have appeared of old unto me, saying, yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. The prophet Jeremiah was speaking of himself there, but we can apply that quite legitimately to everyone who has come to Jesus and believes in him for the forgiveness of their sins. They have been drawn with loving kindness to him. I like what the Bible commentator John Gill said about God drawing people to his son. Gill said... Though the act of drawing is an act of power, yet not of force. God, in drawing of unwilling, makes willing in the day of his power. He enlightens the understanding, bends the will, gives an heart of flesh, sweetly allures by the power of his grace, and engages the soul to come to Christ and give up itself to him. He draws with the bands of love. So we don't come kicking and screaming to Jesus. God draws us with bands of love, having made us willing. Therefore, if Jesus is your Saviour from sin and your Lord, don't imagine that it is because of anything that you initiated. 
far from it. When you reflect upon the circumstances, the events and the people that led to you becoming a Christian and you being honest with yourself, which I hope as a Christian you are, praise God now and forevermore for choosing you for salvation when? An hour before you were saved, do you think? Maybe a week before? Maybe when mum or dad first started to speak to you about Jesus? Maybe that's when God first chose you? Not at all. If God has drawn you to the Lord Jesus Christ with bands of love, it is because he has loved you with an everlasting love. Having chose you for salvation before the foundation of the world. Before God even said, let there be light. And there was light. God chose you. He loved you with an everlasting love. And then in his time, he drew you to his dear son to be saved by his grace and his love. If you're not yet trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, think about it. Think about this. You're not at home, obviously. You're not at home tucked up in your cosy little bed, playing on your electronic device or watching TV. You're not kicking a ball around a football pitch. You're here in church, hearing how God draws people to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you're doing. Could it be that God has loved you with an everlasting love? Therefore, with loving kindness, has he drawn you? Let's have a look at verse 20 in Luke chapter 5. And when he saw their faith, He said unto him, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. First of all, we can consider the faith that Jesus saw when he saw their faith. There, in that verse 20, when he saw their faith, there would include the four stretcher bearers. And their faith would have been very easy to see. By their actions, they demonstrated very clearly that they believed that Jesus was able to heal the paralytic. Perhaps they had already witnessed Jesus healing other people. Perhaps they had heard from others about the miracles of Jesus and then they believed for themselves. Therefore, we needn't necessarily assume that their faith in Jesus was a saving faith and that they brought the paralytic to Jesus to be forgiven of his sins. But they clearly believed that Jesus was able to heal the paralytic. As for the paralytic, his faith was undoubtedly a saving faith in Jesus. I say that because Jesus said to him, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. Forgiveness for sins is only received by those who are trusting in Jesus. They have faith in Jesus 
as repentant sinners. As it is written in Acts chapter 16 and verse 31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. With the understanding that all who were forgiven and saved (coughs) from their sins are drawn by God in various ways to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, with repentant hearts that believe that Jesus is able to forgive them, the information that Matthew gives in his account is very interesting indeed. According to Matthew chapter 9 and verse 2, Jesus said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. See, Matthew gives a bit more information. He says that Jesus said, Be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. Therefore, the paralytic was not of good cheer when he was brought to Jesus. He was miserable. Why would he have been miserable? Because he was paralysed. Well, I, I, I grant that he wouldn't have been happy about being paralysed. Who would be? But more than that, he was miserable because he was burdened by the weight of his sin. So not only was the faith of the stretcher bearers in Christ's ability to heal the paralytic of his physical affliction visible to Jesus and no doubt visible to everyone else in the house as they saw these um, uh, looking up and they see the stretcher bearers lowering the stretcher down to the feet of Jesus their faith was easy to see their faith in Jesus the healer But of vital importance, Jesus saw the guilt and the repentance in the heart of a man who was looking to him for forgiveness of his sins and for spiritual healing. And he soon received from Jesus full assurance that his sins were indeed forgiven. Can you see that the need for forgiveness is far far infinitely greater than the need to be forgiven any physical affliction. Let's have a look at verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? The scribes, who were teachers of God's law, and the Pharisees, they were religious Jews, well, they objected to Jesus saying to the paralytic, thy sins are forgiven thee. They rightly said that only God can forgive sins. However, they did not believe that Jesus is God. That was their problem. Only God can forgive sins. Who is this man to say thy sins are forgiven thee? He's not God. So they accused Jesus of speaking blasphemy. In other words, of speaking wickedly. Verses 22 to 24. But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answering said unto them, What reason ye in your hearts, whether is easier, to say thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, rise up and walk, but that ye may know 
that the Son of Man have power upon earth to forgive sins. He said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise and take up thy couch and go into thy house. We've already seen that the Lord Jesus Christ was able to look into the paralytic's heart and see that he was miserable because of his sins. Now we see Jesus looking into the unbelieving and wicked hearts of the scribes and the Pharisees and seeing the silent objections to him saying to the paralytic, thy sins are forgiven thee. They didn't have to say it. He could see it in their hearts. This is Jesus who knows the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. This is Jesus who we have to stand before on the day of judgment. The one who can see into our hearts and nothing is hidden from him. Anyway, Jesus demonstrated his power or his authority to forgive sins by healing the man of his physical affliction. The healing was obvious to all, it was immediate and it was indisputable inasmuch we are told in verse 25 that immediately he rose up before them. Everyone could see that. No one could doubt it that Jesus had healed the man of his palsy. Any one of you can go around pretending to have authority to forgive sins. Roman Catholic priests do it all the time. But you can't pretend to heal someone immediately from his paralysis. However, Jesus really did heal the paralytic for all to see. And that physical healing proved, uh, provided compelling evidence of his power. It could be argued that the prophets of God and the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ also performed miraculous healings. In fact, they also raised the dead to life. Jesus raised Lazarus to life. But so too did the prophets and the apostles raise people to life. But they did it by the power of God and they did it as mere men. They had no power to forgive sins. It was very different with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's important to note that in verse 24, Jesus referred to him as the Son of Man, thereby making it clear that he is no ordinary man. There's a big difference between Jesus, who is the Son of Man, and the prophets, the apostles, and any one of us who are just sons and daughters of men. That very special title, the Son of Man, can be seen for all that it means in the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13 to 14. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, where Daniel said, I saw in the night visions and behold one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him 
and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Can you see the difference there? The son of man in Daniel and us as sons and daughters of men. The Son of Man, as it applies to Jesus, stands alongside another very special title that belongs to him. The Son of God. The inseparable connection between the two titles can be seen in various Bible verses where the divinity of Jesus shines through. For example, I'm just going to look at Mark chapter 14, if you want to follow with me, keep your finger in Luke chapter 5. Mark chapter 14. Okay, I'm going to read verse 60 onwards. This is when Jesus had uh, appeared before the kangaroo court with the, the chief priest there and the high priest before he was crucified. So, verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? The high priest had brought forth accusers and they couldn't even get their stories right. Verse 61 But he held his peace and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him and said unto him Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? In other words, the Son of God. Jesus said, I am, and ye shall see the Son of Man. He's just confirmed that he is the Son of God. And then he says, I am, having said I am, he says, ye shall see the Son of Man, sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. That's a direct reference to what I read to you from Daniel chapter 7. You can see the connection there. Jesus is saying that he is the Son of Man spoken of in Daniel chapter 7, having confirmed that he is the Son of God. And then look at 63, verse 63. Then the high priest rent his clothes and said, What need we any further witness? Ye have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. Why was that? Why did the high priest rent his clothes? Such drama there. Blasphemy! As he rents his clothes. It's because Jesus had just confirmed that he is the Son of God. The Son of Man. Then we have Matthew chapter 16. Again, keep your finger in Luke chapter 5. Matthew 16, 
Again, we're going to see Son of Man, Son of God together. You really can't separate them. Verse 13 in Matthew 16. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? There we have it again. Jesus, the Son of Man. <coughs> and they, they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's a wonderful confession of faith from the Apostle Peter there. And quite understandably, in verse 16, uh, verse 17, Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. So we've got Jesus. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? The Apostle Peter declares, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed was Peter, and blessed are you as well. If that is your confession, if you can shoot from the heart and say, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But you see the connection there, inseparable. Son of man, Son of God. Finally, back in Luke chapter 5, we'll look at verse 25 and 26. And immediately he rose up before him and took up that whereon he lay and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, we have seen strange things today. The th- Never mind the healed paralytic, as wonderful as, th- as that is, right? but let's... Let's get to the point here. The forgiven sinner picked up his mat and went away glorifying God. And others who had witnessed the events in that house also glorified God. Although I don't imagine the scribes and the Pharisees did. We we also glorify God if and when we acknowledge him and the great things that he has done. That's that's how we glorify God. Looking at it negatively, most of this world, what do they do? They they take God out of everything, out of our schools, out of they they ascribe this world and everything that we see to evolution, the Big Bang, and so on and so on. But we glorify God when we acknowledge Him, who He is, and His his creative power and, and, and his mercy, his grace, his love, and so on and so on. When the paralytic was first brought 
to Jesus. He was miserable, but you can be sure that he was far from miserable when he departed to his own house glorifying God. The man had just received forgiveness for all his sins. Likewise, the dying thief who was nailed to a cross alongside the Lord Jesus Christ glorified God. We're not told that, but he glorified God when he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. How is it that he glorified God? By saying those words, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. The thief was acknowledging that Jesus has a heavenly kingdom. Also, even though he was a, he was dying a horrible death on the cross, you can be sure that he died with the peace and even the joy of a forgiven sinner glorifying the God of his salvation. I'd rather be like that thief on the cross, forgiven and given the assurance, today you will be with me in paradise, than be anyone in this world now who leaves this world having never trusted in Jesus. I can tell you that straight away, without any shadow of a doubt. There was another man who, having been baptised after glorifying God by confessing Jesus to be the Son of God, went on his way rejoicing, according to Acts chapter 8 and verse 39. The Ethiopian eunuch went on his way rejoicing. So he was another one who wasn't rejoicing beforehand, like the paralytic. As for you, be of good cheer. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name by showing repentance towards God and being baptised, believing that the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, the incarnate Son of God, has paid the debt of your sin with his own precious blood at the cross. Amen.